Thanks for joining us for November's Jane MP podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. This month, we take a look at how Parkinson's patients feel about deep brain stimulation after they've had the surgery. Francisca Meyer and Catherine Lewis, both from the Department of Neurology in the University of Cologne, had noticed that some patients were disappointed following the procedure, despite having significant motor benefits and improved quality of life. Concerned, they devised a questionnaire to assess patients' perceived outcomes and tried to find clinical measures or patient expectations which predicted this. We were glad to hear that about uh, 50% of our patients were very satisfied with their outcome. Mm. But unfortunately, eight patients of 30, well, about 25%, felt unsatisfied and were disappointed with their results. More from Catherine and Francisca later. But first, getting a handle on aggressive multiple sclerosis and another step towards defining it. Joining me via Skype now is Sharesh Menon, who's a clinical fellow at the London, Ontario MS Clinic, and also Helen Tremlett, who's Associate Professor in the Division of Neurology at the University of British Columbia. So thanks both to you for uh, for taking the time to talk to us. Thank Thank you you very much. What's currently understood um, by the term aggressive multiple sclerosis? If you, for your typical neurologist, what does that mean? I I have to say, I think before this paper was published, there is one other paper out there trying to define aggressive MS. I think it was rather vague um, and subjective and just up to the individual neurologist to decide whether they thought that person had aggressive MS or not. There are obviously extreme cases that I think no one would question whether that was aggressive disease or not. And then there are other people who are a bit more, um, it's not so black and white as to whether you'd really call their disease aggressive or not. So I think that's the real key point in this paper is that we're trying to address that and trying to create definitions that can be applied to other studies. So Suresh has developed some very clear definitions using EDSS and secondary progressive MS that can be applied in other situations. Because I think it's really fascinating to see that there are over um, 10 or more different definitions for benign multiple sclerosis, Mm. but there's virtually, there's none really for aggressive MS. As I guess if we've got, you know, if we don't have a, a definition for it, then we don't have much idea of the, the, the prevalence and the incidence. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so there is an absence of a population-based definition. So this is what we try to accomplish with this study. And I think it's incredibly important because there are a lot of experimental treatments out there for aggressive MS, which which are quite have a lot of side effects to them, as you you might imagine, or are very experimental. Um, but if we don't really know who these patients are, who has aggressive MS, how many people have aggressive MS, then we don't really know um, who we should be targeting or how many people potentially are coming through our clinics that could be targeted for these um, experimental drug treatments. So to me, to get the epidemiology nailed is really fundamental. Right, okay, so we're almost getting ahead of ourselves. I I agree with that, yeah. Right. So what were the the definitions that you looked at in this paper? Because there are three, um, I believe, you you looked at. So we basically explored three different definitions, which uh, were uh, very uh, unambiguous and uh, very specific. So the first definition which we looked at was uh, uh, patients who had reached a confirmed EDSS of six or greater within five years from the onset of their MS symptoms. 
Now, this uh, confirmation was also achieved by us a repeat EDSS score of more than six, at least 150 days after the first recorded EDSS. Um, the second definition that we used was uh, having reached a confirmed EDSS six or greater by age of 40 years. And the third definition that we used was uh, having reached a secondary progressive MS within three years of a relapsing onset course. We also had a definition uh, where we combined the first and the second definitions and also looked at this group of patients. For each of the three uh, definitions, we had the comparator cohorts, uh, which were selected uh, for each of the three uh, groups of patients. Hmm. What was your reasoning for, for coming up with those three? Uh, so we wanted to look at uh, this extreme uh, scenario from uh, three different aspects, basically. So one was... Uh, looking at patients who rapidly achieve the disability level. The second definition looks at those patients who, who need a cane to walk uh, at a very early age. The third uh, definition looks at a different aspect where uh, patients are uh, entering the progressive phase of MS, uh, where we know all uh, the current disease-modifying drugs are not known to be approved in this phase. So those patients who rapidly progress into into the secondary progressive phase, they would also uh, have a very little uh, short window of opportunity and would have a more aggressive course of disease. To me, I think that's, I think it makes this paper really interesting because we don't know how to measure MS. That is, MS, as you know, is a very challenging disease to, to measure, to quantify, to follow over time. So what we've got here are three very different ways of looking at aggressive MS. We're looking at the EDSS. We're looking at secondary progressive MS. And now we're also looking at the age at which people reach these disability outcomes. Um, and I think it just gives you a very different perspective as to um, what aggressive MS could be. And I, I think these, these criteria can be, re I hope they can be refined over time um, as people can bring in other aspects, you know, maybe things like cognition or MRI and imaging and things that um, we didn't address at this early stage. But I think this is a really uh, moves the field really forward with these three interesting ways of looking at aggressive MS. Great. Okay. And the, um, the, the data set you used was a longitudinal population set uh, based in British Columbia and Canada. Uh, and you had just under 6,000 patients with data from 1980 to, to 2009. And these were all adult onset patients as well. So what did you find with that? What percentage of the population in that data set did you define as having MS, aggressive MS? So taken all together, if you want the, like, the bottom line answer, between 4 and 14% of our patient population could be considered as having aggressive MS, depending on how you define it. Okay. And then what about the, the characteristics of the patients that you defined as having aggressive MS? What did you find there? To me, the bottom line answer is nothing was particularly surprising in terms of the characteristics. If you're in the field of MS, it won't surprise you to hear that men, those older at symptom onset and those presenting with primary progressive MS had a higher odds of um, having aggressive MS. So no surprises there. But I think what we did find very interesting, and we really try to emphasize, that is despite the, the risk for, the, for those particular in, um, groups of patients, still the majority of people with aggressive MS were women. So three out of five 
five patients that we identified as having aggressive MS were women, and the majority still had relapsing onset ever MS. So it's not to say that those people cannot get aggressive MS, and they were still in the majority of patients who fulfilled that criteria. So the characteristics are still fairly similar to the, the general population of MS patients, is that right? That's correct. I think sometimes when people hear that, oh, men, those older at symptom onset, primary progressive MS, I'm going to um, put those aside. They're the aggressive MS patients. Well, you know what? Unfortunately, no. A lot of women can have aggressive MS. A lot of people with relapsing onset MS can have aggressive MS. Hmm. There is no one definition which can define aggressive MS. So when we looked at all three definitions, they look at different subpopulations and there may not be one single criteria which is superior to the other. So you were talking about drug trials earlier. How do you see your results going forward helping plan those those drug trials? Uh, one of the questions uh, while planning drug trials, obviously, is uh, about the the numbers, basically, how many people are we going to target? Because many of these experimental therapies are, are designed to target uh, patients with aggressive MS. Now, our study would give some numbers as to how many would be expected uh, to follow an aggressive course over a period of time, and that will help in planning uh, studies with a good uh, sample size and power. Also, it will help uh, the planners allocate uh, funding for rehabilitation or the palliative care services, which is uh, is required for this patient pop, uh, population. There is a real challenge with clinical trials. You might set your study up, but if you don't know um, how many people you could expect to enroll in your clinical trial over time, at least you can come to this kind of study and say, we, you'd expect 4 to 14% of an MS population to have aggressive MS, and it can give people a sense of how quickly potentially they can recruit people into to the trial. It doesn't give them all the answers, but at least it gives them some a place to start. And we hope as well um, to think about what definition you're going to use for aggressive MS. And we'd love it if there was a, you know, an internationally accepted definition that everyone would use and then that helps us to really um, nail the disease and define the disease much better. How far do you think we are from that? Further than we were before you published this paper. (laughs) That's a good answer. (laughs) I mean this is only the second paper um, we're aware of Mm. that actually tries to define aggressive MS. Um, So we are hoping it will be picked up and and talked about and, and refined and applied in other populations. That would be fabulous. Great. Well, that's a good gauntlet to lay down. Um, So Helen and Suresh, thank you very much for for coming on and talking us through this research. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it, Harriet. Thank you very much. This month's JNMP Patient Choice paper examines deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's disease. It's an expensive, invasive procedure, but it can significantly improve symptoms in some patients, particularly motor symptoms, so picking the right people to have it is obviously very important. Francisca Meyer and Catherine Lewis, both from the Department of Neurology at the University of Cologne in Germany, have looked at a whole host of factors to try and predict whether or not a patient will regret having the procedure. And uh, both of them join me via Skype now. So good afternoon. Thanks very much for coming on. Hello. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So to kick us off, could you just go through what the exact question was that you wanted to answer? And why did you feel that it needed addressing? 
Okay, well, in our study, we wanted to find out how many patients with Parkinson's disease perceive their deep brain stimulation outcome as, as positive, mixed, or negative. Also, we were interested in identifying risk factors for dissatisfaction with DBS. Due to our clinical impression and reports on disappointed patients, we were interested in how patients themselves perceive their DBS outcome. So the main focus was set on the comparison between the patient's opinion and the results of standard measures. So, so what did the cur- what's the current model for uh, screening for, for DBS? How, how do you pick patients? Um, well, the different countries have different guidelines for the selection of DBS candidates. But in uh, Germany, patients are screened very carefully during an inpatient stay. And there, the UPDIS part three, that's a measuring scale for motor symptoms in Parkinson's disease, has to show a significant improvement. Um, Patients should also show an an improvement through medication with dopamine. And um, they should not suffer from dementia. Therefore, the cognition is tested prior to surgery by neuropsychologists. And also, um, they should not suffer from any major psychiatric diseases. And this is ruled out by a consultation through a psychiatrist. And then, of course, also the biological uh, biological age and the general health status of patients um, plays a role on the selection. Okay, so it's all the patients that you looked at in your study would have gone through that procedure as well as the procedures that you put them through. Yes, yes, that's right. Okay, Um, so you had... 30 patients and you looked at them just before they went into surgery and then uh, three months after. So how how did you actually assess um, their perception of surgery and their opinion of it afterwards? It sounds like a bit of a a slippery thing to to get a handle on. Yeah, it was hard for us, definitely. But uh, what we did is uh, we conducted interviews with all patients before surgery as well as three months after the operation. And before surgery, the main focus was put on expectations and on what patients wished to have changed under DBS. Mm. Also, we wanted to know which symptoms impaired them the most. And then three months after the surgery, we asked our patients again. And this time we focused on their subjective perspective on what symptoms have improved and what symptoms did not change or even worsened subjectively. So we also wanted to know how DBS had changed our patient's life so far. Then we analyzed the number of positive and negative changes for each patient separately, and then we classified them according to their subjective outcome. So that patients that named at least twice as many positive changes than negative changes were considered as satisfied with their outcome, while patients that remarked at least twice as many negative changes than positive changes were considered as dissatisfied. And uh, finally, the threshold group was classified as having a mixed outcome. Okay, so those patients that had uh, a negative opinion afterwards, those are the ones that you think shouldn't have had the surgery in the first place? Well, not exactly. It's it's better to counsel to do to do counselling on them and to talk with them about their expectations. Maybe to stabilise um, them beforehand um, before doing the surgery. Okay, so maybe it's more that they needed support, extra support, rather than not having the surgery. Yes, right. Okay, and and what about the other clinical measures that you looked at? Could you take us through these? Well, next to our interviews, all patients were examined regarding their PD motor symptoms, of course. 
their mood and their neuropsychological functioning as well as their quality of life. The motor functioning was assessed with the Unified Parkinson's Disease Rating Scale, without anti-Parkinsonian medication and also with best response to dopaminergic medication. Then uh, for the mood state, all of our patients were examined concerning depression, mania, apathy and anxiety. Then uh, dementia, working memory and verbal fluency were tested as neuropsychological functions. And finally, quality of life was measured with the PDQ39, which is the standard questionnaire in Parkinson's disease. And again, all these tests were applied before and after surgery. So therefore, we were able to compare our patient classification to these standard measures once over time and also between the groups. Hmm. What, what did you find then in terms of uh, patients' opinion about the, the procedure afterwards? Uh, how, how were those 30 split into positive, negative and mixed? Well, interestingly, uh, we were glad to hear that about uh, 50% of our patients were very satisfied with their outcome. And also 25% felt mixed about it. Mm. But unfortunately, eight patients of 30, um, well, about 25% felt unsatisfied and were disappointed with their result. So what predictors did you then find for, for the negative outcome patients? Uh, well, in this particular study, we found two predictors for a subjective negative outcome, um, higher preoperative depression and apathy values. So patients with higher baseline apathy and depression scores were in the negative outcome group. We um, actually found cutoff scores for two widely used tests for apathy and depression. So this might be useful for clinicians in the future. This shows that a negative mood, meaning, for instance, um, less motivation to leave the house or to be socially active before the surgery could lead to patients not being satisfied with their DBS treatment. And um, their mood might not have improved through the treatment. So it might be sensible to give patients the opportunity to treat their mood before operating them. So um, they have a chance of perceiving their DBS outcome as more positive. We suggest that counseling or psychotherapy might help to stabilize a patient preoperatively. Great. Okay. And and what about the the patients' expectations uh, before going into surgery? Did these did any of these correlate with the with their opinion after surgery? Well, the study showed that um, well that motor improvement does not necessarily lead to a positive um, subjective outcome. So we think that discussing the patient's expectations before surgery um, would be a would be a great help because it should be made clear to the patients what they can and cannot expect from the deep brain stimulation. Um, because some patients might, for instance, um, expect their relationship to improve through DBS, so they think that improving motor symptoms might reflect on their partnership, or they might expect an improvement of general health. But this cannot be guaranteed by uh, the deep brain stimulation. Right. Okay. So are the clinical messages then from this research that we've got to be better at managing those expectations? Um, right. And we've also got to improve the way we select for, for deep brain simulation and give some of these patients um, extra support with uh, with psychiatric problems. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. What are the next steps with this research? Because um, three months isn't a particularly long time after surgery. Are you going to continue to follow these patients up? 
Yes, of course, that's our intention. We see uh, our patients definitely about uh, half a year and one year after surgery again, and then we will test them again and ask them again, and hopefully, well, some of them will feel better about their outcome. Fingers crossed. Great. Well, we'll be looking forward to, to seeing those results. And thanks both for, for coming on and telling us about this first paper. Yeah, thank well, you. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> As always, you can have a look at both those papers for free on genmp.bmj.com. Next month, we'll be hearing about the genetics of ischemic stroke and whole brain radiation versus selective radiosurgery for cerebral metastases. And we'll have another JNMP and ABN educational special for you, this time on headache. Thanks for listening and come back then.